Okay, uh, good afternoon and welcome to the Iowa City Foreign Relations Program with guest speakers, Mark Suchaska and Sarah Zechnik. Uh, thanks to both of them and to everyone who has joined us online, online today. I am Peter Gerlach, Project Director for our new program series on refugees and immigrants in Iowa. I'm also a member of the ICFRC's board and I am your host for today's program. We are grateful to Humanities Iowa and the National Endowment for the Humanities for their funding, uh, for their funding support of this project, uh, this really uh, incredible, um, really exciting project. We would also like to acknowledge and thank our other annual donors, sponsors, and partners for their support. The Iowa City Council through the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, the University of Iowa's International Programs, Honors Program, Public Policy Center, and Center for Human Rights, the Stanley UI Foundation Support Organization, Midwest One Bank, and of course, City Channel 4 for its support in live streaming our in-person programs and for providing access to all of ICFRC's programs along with the UI Library Archives. ICFRC has adopted the Native American Land Acknowledgement prepared for the City of Iowa City's Ad Hoc Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Human Rights Commission. We recognize that our community of Iowa City, quote, now occupies the homelands of Native American nations to whom we owe our commitment and dedication, end quote. The full text of our acknowledgement is on our website at icfrc.org. As we get started, uh, I'd like to cover some Zoom etiquette tips. This is the time to make sure that you know where your video and audio mute unmute buttons are located. Please uh, do keep your audio and video turned off the duration of the presentation so that you don't interrupt the speakers during their remarks. Uh, following our speaker's presentation uh, at about uh, one o'clock, uh, we will have a 15 minute Q&A. You will be able to submit your questions via the chat function. At that time, we invite you to turn on your video, uh, but please keep uh, uh, your audio muted to avoid any background noise. Okay, it's now my pleasure to introduce Mark Suchaska and Sarah Zechnik, who will speak about resettling Afghan refugees in Iowa. Mark Suchaska serves as the Bureau Chief for the Iowa Bureau of Refugee Services, alongside his role as the State of Iowa Refugee Coordinator through ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Mark originates from Sarajevo, Bosnia, and was transplanted to Des Moines, Iowa in 1993 as a refugee fleeing from war-torn Yugoslavia with his family. Mock's professional career has been devoted to advocating and supporting refugees across the state to promote a more equitable community for all. With over 12 years of experience in nonprofits and state government, it's Mock's life's journey that has provided a unique and necessary perspective in guiding his work. Ma completed his political science undergraduate studies here at the University of Iowa and uh, with a double minor in religion and history. He achieved his MPA degree through Drake University with an emphasis on public policy and will pursue his doctorate degree in educational leadership at Drake University. Sarah Zednik is Director of Refugee and Immigrant Services at Catherine McCauley Center in Cedar Rapids.
after obtaining a BA in International Relations and Religion from Wartburg College and an MA in Intercultural Service, Leadership and Management from SIT Graduate Institute. Sarah has dedicated her career to providing and leading supportive services to refugees as they work to find stability and safety in their new communities. In her role at this CMC, Sarah is committed to ensuring that community members, partners, and local employers have the information and resources necessary to work effectively with diverse populations. Please join me in welcoming Mark Sucheska and Sarah Zechnik. Hello to you both. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Appreciate that intro. You're Doing well, glad to be here. Fabulous. I'm, I'm super happy to see both of you. Uh, we have a really, really important uh, conversation today. We're going to uh, cover a lot of ground. We're going to go global. We're going to go national. We're going to go local. Uh, I'm also really pleased uh, because uh, we've worked on other projects. We will be working on other projects together. Uh, and it's, it's always wonderful to share space with you both. So uh, as I do in the class I teach in the spring, uh, I wanna start with this first question, okay? So only in a few questions, a few sentences. I, I, this will be a challenge, I know. It would, be, <laughs> it would be for me. In a few sentences only, would you share in your own words your migration story to Iowa? And uh, Sarah, let me start with you, okay? So I um, I'm originally from Wisconsin and I came to Iowa for college, um, but my last name is Bosnian. Um, my husband came as a refugee from Bosnia in 2001 when he was 11 years old. And that's really where I got an introduction to refugee issues and through talking to his family and learning about their experience, um, his family fled the war and fled from um, Bosnia into Croatia and then waited for resettlement in the US. They came to Iowa because my uncle, my husband's uncle um, was originally settled to Utica, New York. And uh, around the time the Bosnians were resettled, um, Tyson, uh, what's now Tyson, what was formerly a Iowa, or Iowa pork um, plant uh, had taken a bus out to Utica and went to a bunch of single men and said, hey, are you interested in coming to Iowa? We've got jobs and brought them to Waterloo. And ever since then, um, since the mid nineties, my husband's family has been residing in Waterloo. Thank you, Sarah. I, I, I love starting with this question because it's, it's good to know who we're talking with, right? And, and what your stories are, particularly when we're talking about you know, migration, immigration. Uh, you know, where are people from? How do they get to, uh, to where they are now? And you're from Wisconsin, you said, I am too. Uh, where, where in the state uh, are you originally from? I am originally from the suburbs of Milwaukee. Okay, I won't hold that against you. I'm from Appleton. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm friends from Appleton, so we can, we can okay. be friends still. <laughs> We're on safe ground. Okay, Mark, uh, over to you, the, the same question, okay, in, in a few sentences only. Uh, Sarah went over the few part, but she got an A plus for her answer. Will you please uh, share your own migration story to, to Iowa? Sure. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Thanks, Peter, and looking forward to the conversation we'll have uh, throughout this time. Uh, my family and I originally came to Des Moines, Iowa from Sarajevo, Bosnia. Uh, Sarajevo is the capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina. 
We were resettled to the state of Iowa in 1993, shortly after the floods in August of 1993. So if you are from Des Moines or remember the floods of 93, uh, you can imagine how of a turbulent time it was to be coming here as a refugee uh, from nothing and then having to sort of start once again, given the circumstances. Uh, we've been in Des Moines ever since. Uh, when we flew, when we uh, had to flee out of Bosnia, just similar to Sarah's husband's story, we also went to Croatia. Unfortunately, um, on my mom's side, she is of Croatian lineage. So we had family there that was able to help support us. We were in a refugee camp uh, for about 10 months. My, both of my parents uh, were actually offered jobs to work at the Bureau of Refugee Services when we were in Croatia. And shortly after the day that we arrived, both of them were actually employed as refugee specialist case managers at the Bureau of Refugee Services. And so the organization that resettled my family and I, I had the privilege and honor to lead today. So my immigration stories kind of come full circle and looking forward to sharing more of that as we go forward. Thank you, Ma. Yeah, it's, uh, your work is personal uh, to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah. Fabulous. Uh, you get an A plus too. <laughs> okay. Uh, first, first A I ever got from a University of Iowa establishment. So uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's pretty good. I'll make sure it goes on your transcript. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, let's, let's go, let's go broad first. Uh, let's, let's go global. Uh, Mark, uh, Refugee resettlement is uh, a very complex global system. Would you briefly explain how refugees uh, make their way from their home countries here to, to Iowa? Yeah, I'd be more than happy to share that. Um, not only from a personal perspective, and I'm sure Sarah can touch on this a little bit as well, but the refugee process and experience in itself, as you mentioned, is very complex. There is the technical side of refugee resettlement and becoming a refugee. And then there's also the circumstantial um, position that folks find themselves in as refugees. Uh, anyone who makes their way to Iowa has to go through a cumbersome process to be approved for refugee resettlement to a third country. Usually how the process goes, um, given the local circumstances or situations that are going on, either uh, politically, socially, or sometimes even natural disasters that may force one to leave their home, they pick up the belongings that they have. Usually in a small amount of time, very rarely, you will have enough leeway to be able to pack your things and go. You pick up what you have, you go either by yourself or with your family, you cross an actual international border into a second country that has established itself as a temporary asylum destination, where then during that time of your second country of residency, whether for us being Croatia, or if you're uh, in Africa or Asia going to a neighboring country, you are then applying for refugee resettlement status through the UNHCR, which is the UN High Commission for refugees. During that time, you are going through numerous background checks, cultural orientations, medical screenings, 
just really ensuring a you're saying uh, people are confirming that you are who you say you are and then if the third country has a resettlement program where you will be resettled to like the united states and then eventually iowa the process in itself can take anywhere from six to 18 months we've worked with families sarah can attest to this as well uh people growing up in generations in refugee camps 10 15 20 years so not only that complexity, uh, but also the timeline in itself can be very long. Uh, if everything goes according to plan and all of the screenings come back clear, medical uh, screenings are also complete, you then get your travel destination and a notice where then you um, are set to fly and travel to the final relocation of resettlement, which in this case, for the purposes of this conversation is Iowa. So Iowa has been resettling refugees officially since 1975, at least through the Bureau, and then subsequently after to today. I wanna to go back a little bit on the, the difference between the technical and sort of circumstance, circumstantial situation of refugees. Refuge, you are a refugee uh, of, you are a refugee or you become a refugee dependent upon what circumstances you face, even though you may not be officially recognized as a refugee. For the purposes of resettlement, we talk about folks that are officially processed and designated with refugee status to be resettled. I don't wanna take away from the millions of people who experience the refugee sort of situation that don't get approved for a resettlement or don't have the privilege, honestly, at times to go through this official process to achieve that final destination of resettlement. So we only have a snapshot of those refugees that are going through the process, but many millions more who will never have the luxury, and I, and I think that's fair to say, to go through this process, uh, but they are refugees nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. Boy, there, there are so many layers there. I, I wonder in, uh, in listening to your, your explanation, what do you find is, you know, Maybe there are many. Uh, I, certainly, I've, I've, uh, I know of many. But what would you say are maybe the one or two uh, most common misconceptions uh, about the the very complicated landscape that you've you've just shared with us? Well, I think first and foremost, refugees don't want to leave their home. I mean, you don't want to leave your home, right? Uh, you're unfortunately forced to do that, uh, whether that's through political oppression, uh, war natural disasters, or just situations in your home country that are forcing you to leave for a better life, not only for yourself and your, for your family. So I think the biggest misconception uh, would be that refugees choose to come to Iowa or the United States. They don't have a choice, which means that many people come with a great sense of loss. And so for many who do make Iowa their home, it's always gonna be a second home, even though Iowa has been welcoming and, and has such a legacy, and we'll hopefully talk about that a little bit later. It's always going, home will always be for uh, where one comes from. And so that's important to keep in mind. And I would also to keep in mind uh, a, a misconception is that refugees are, are perceived by their title as opposed to the humanity that's attached to them. And so I think that sometimes gets lost as well, that we see refugees and although experiencing dire situations, um, 
are dire themselves. And I, and I don't think that's fair. Uh, the work that we do, especially the work that Catherine McCauley does and working with people 24 seven around the clock and, and really on a grassroots effort, you have to take the person at who they are as opposed to what they are. And so when we are working with people, we are working with former engineers, professors, doctors, administrative assistants, um, political and political entities, politicians, community organizers. We, we really focus on the person holistically as opposed to their status. So I think I, that's what I would take away from that question, Peter, would be uh, the humanity that needs to be attached to the people we work with and also um, that people come with a great sense of loss. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Uh, I, th th those are both uh, something that I know my students and I have discussed repeatedly. And, you know, I was just, we're going to be recommending, you know, some, some books, some really good stuff for people to, um, to learn more from the firsthand experience, of, as both of you have just talked about. In this particular one, really interwoven, uh, the other week I was talking with Ayad Said, uh, one of the authors in here, and he and I had this really robust, wonderful but also emotional conversation about what home means and uh, home being, uh, you know, for um, for him being very split in two places. Uh, I would encourage folks to read that in this in this other book, which I don't love the, the cover, uh, the displays. These are this is an incredible book. The cover, though, is we can problematize the you know the notion of this imagery of of you know refugees always being on the move in darkness. Um, but uh, yes, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, um, Sarah, just to you know, quickly piggyback on, on what uh, Mock uh, talked about there, do you see some, uh, some similar uh, misconceptions, uh, some, some myths around um, refugees that, that you could share with us? Yeah, I think, you know, Mock really, really encompassed a lot of what we see. Um, and I think, you know, especially when we're talking about kind of the perceptions of people um, and what they're, um, how we view them and, and viewing them as the single narrative, right? That, that refugees are, are people who've been forced to flee and they're, they're defined by their experience. Um, and it's something that CMC has really been working to be able to offer more education on um, and, and provide more community education and advocacy around how are we talking about refugees and immigrants and and recognizing that they are whole people with who have lived full lives already um, and now are entering into new communities with a wealth of experience. And I think with that, that, that it's not just that us as a welcoming community has, has things to give to refugees and immigrants, but that they truly have things to contribute back into our communities. Um, and that there is so much that we can learn from our refugee and immigrant neighbors. Yeah, thanks so much, Sarah. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, this this notion of adjustment or assimilation, it needs to be bilateral. It's not just folks who go from one place to that new place who have to do all the work. It's for all of us to do all that work. Yeah, they, man, folks do bring so much to us, and you know, we uh, we should be, um, we are grateful. Um, Mark, you touched a little while ago, and you said you wanted uh, to to say a bit more about uh, the legacy here in Iowa. So, what has the legacy of refugee resettlement in our state here in Iowa look like uh, over the last several decades? 
Uh, it's been a legacy of welcoming and support. I think that's probably the best way to summarize it, uh, even through the changing of policy, uh, immigration and refugee policies, through changing of administrations uh, here locally, um, not so much federally, just looked a little different. Uh, but for the state of Iowa, we've, we've been a state that has lived up to our legacy, starting with Governor Robert Ray's first initiative and um, uh, intent on helping support Vietnamese and Southeast Asian refugees fleeing from that part of the world during the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, when we look at the legacy of the early 90s and 2000s from Bosnian, Sudanese, Somali, Congolese, to the late 2000s and now where we are today in 2021, helping support Afghans, uh, Iraqis, and uh, Burmese, Bhutanese, and really a slew of immigrants and refugees coming from all, all across the globe. As, as I have conversations with my counterparts across our network, not only regionally, but also the United States, Iowa really has been a leader and looked to as a leader for refugee resettlement. Not only that initial piece, but that sustainable integration of refugees into their new community. From extended supports to entrepreneurship to many different stakeholders, really looking internally of where, of where refugee and immigrants can help boost that, that industry or that local community as we touched on but also how we can support refugees as well to achieving their dreams and, uh, and aspirations that they have for themselves and their families. So that, that's a legacy that uh, we have continued to build on and, and ensure that it's alive and well, not only through platforms like we are here today, talking and learning about re the refugee community, but the everyday work that we are doing here at the Bureau, at Catherine McCauley and across the country to ensure that our country itself continues to re remain that welcoming, uh, that welcoming entity that we have been for many years. And I think for Iowa, what our future holds is that we just continue to have those conversations. We continue to have the difficult talks as well um, to look internally at ourselves and where, where we may have some gaps that exist and how we can look to the community at a whole to help support one another and each other. And I want to, and, you know, and I want to share an example that that really that really uh, came to prevalence during this time, especially at the onset of the pandemic. For American society in Iowa in general, we we aren't really used to dire situations and circumstances that that affect us with respect to curfews, staying at home, making sure that we are doing everything we can to protect our families because our well-being now is uh, being compromised due, due to the global pandemic. I've said and I, in some of the talks that Sarah and I have been a part of as well is we can learn from our refugee community members on what it, what it means to, to survive uh, during a dire situation and circumstance that you have really no control over. I know the derecho and natural disasters are natural to, to this part of the state, but something that was on a global scale that really affected us. Um, we, we could learn from those who have experienced it uh, almost on a daily basis. So there's all, like you said, there's that bilateral partnership that we have to ensure uh, stays, stays alive and remains sustainable as we, as we work together.
Well, I have to tell you that is, that is a really powerful point. And I hope, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> I know, but I, I hope too, that we're, we're gonna discuss this, this further and uh, you know, how we understand resiliency, for example. In, this is a, a six part series on refugees and immigrants in Iowa. And in our next, uh, our next talk next month, we're gonna be focused on, focusing on the lived experience and then the one after that in February, we're going to be talking about COVID-19, health, mental health more broadly. And I, we're, going to, we're going to get into, into some of those issues as well. And that is a, a fantastic point that I'm writing down about what uh, we can all learn from uh, refugees and immigrants who have faced uh, tougher circumstances than many of us in the United States are, are used to. It's an excellent point, Mock. Before we, uh, before I turn to uh, Sarah about um, uh, Catherine McCauley's legacy, I, I want to uh, uh, not go political on us, but uh, go political for a moment. Um, some, I, I won't go too far, Mark. I promise. Um, uh, I think some people might think, maybe folks uh, watching, uh, listening to our conversation might think, well, Iowa is a red state. And so it's surprising to me that you're saying that um, our state has such a strong legacy. Use the word uh, leadership um, that, that folks across the country view Iowa as a leader. How have you seen in your, your time, uh, in, in your position, uh, how changes in political administrations, uh, whether they be uh, national or state, affect the work that you do and, and really what goes unchanged regardless of who's in office? Sure, and, and I, I think given the context, that's an appropriate question, but as a public servant, I will tread that, I will tread my answer lightly. Um, but my answer is, is relevant. I think we'll, we'll answer this question at least from the perspective of the Bureau of Refugee Services and the role that we are in. We are, our role is to serve people regardless of administration or what policies come down, we navigate as well as we can to ensure that regardless of what administration or policies are being implemented, we are doing what we can to help support refugees, not only here in Des Moines, but across the state. Um, we have been a leader and continue to be a leader as a state. Uh, primarily when we look at the entire, the entire scope of services to refugees. Granted, there have been gaps and hurdles that we've needed to face and that we will continue to overcome and, and experience, and I think that is fair to say. But having people with lived experience in the roles that we find ourselves in, um, ensuring that the legacy is alive and at the forefront either through advocacy or conversations that we have with our leadership and just maintaining that level of transparency between those policymakers and the people who are experiencing the implementation of that policy. Our role is to make sure that we are that bridge regardless of who's in charge. And I will say from, from that high level standpoint, particularly during this Afghan crisis, we have had uh, many people come to the table, including uh, Governor Reynolds's office, DHS leadership, nonprofit leaders, ethnic community-based organizations with one mission in mind. And that mission is to make sure that our involvement as a country in Afghanistan and the people who are facing 
um, any circumstances that will affect their livelihood and well-being. If they're coming to the U.S., if they're coming to Iowa, we as a network are stepping up to make sure that they are supported. And that goes with every refugee uh, that is going to be resettled to Iowa. The, the work that we are doing is not exclusive to the Afghan population. It just happens to be that this was a humanitarian crisis that we needed to address. But the work that we do at the Bureau of Refugee Services, we, we remove politics and we look at the person and what we need to do. Unfortunately, politics does affect the entire scope of the work that we do, uh, but we navigate as well as we can to ensure that people have food, people have a home, people are getting the medical care they need and getting referred to resources and supports such as uh, services that Catherine McCulley offers uh, in, uh, accordingly. So our, our, we're in the business of, of people and making sure people are safe. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Mark. Uh, and Sarah, let's let's build on that a little bit. And, uh, and in, in part, uh, my question is going to be uh, fair and a little unfair, uh, but I promise <laughs> it's in in a reasonable way. Okay, um, so building on on what Maka has just said, uh, and thinking about legacy and the the truly important, crucial work that's being done. Would you please tell us uh, over the years, how has uh, Catherine McCauley Center supported uh, refugees and immigrants? And, and I wonder if, if not that I want you to speak on behalf of uh, what other organizations are doing, I know that that's tricky, but uh, maybe in part in your, in your answer, you could tell us a little bit about what you, how you work with other organizations and, and, and together uh, how your efforts to resettle um, refugees is, is stronger. Yeah, certainly. So, um, Catherine McCauley Center is a relatively new, um, resettlement agency, and this kind of ties into, um, the question that you asked Mock as well. Um, while the resettle, the federal resettlement program has seen historically bipartisan support, um, we've, we've also seen it become politicized over the past several years. Um, and, and it was very much, it, it became much more um, subject to the politics of uh, the federal administration, especially over you know, the last five years. And we've seen that with fluctuations um, in national arrival numbers, which trickles down to, to local arrival numbers as well. And so um, when the Trump administration took office, uh, or shortly just prior to the Trump administration taking office, um, Obama had president then President Obama had set a national ceiling of 125,000 uh, refugee admissions um, for the upcoming fiscal year, federal fiscal year, um, and that's when Catherine McCauley Center was approached to open a resettlement office. Was in kind of late summer, early fall of 2016. Um, in preparation for a higher number of refugee arrivals than we had seen um, in the years prior, where the years prior, um, federal numbers landed anywhere between 75 and about 90,000 a year um, for national arrivals. Um, and, and so CMC, Catherine McCauley Center, really worked to connect with local partners at the time and prior to Catherine McCauley Center opening, there was uh, resettlement was being done in Eastern Iowa by Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Dubuque. Um, and at the time we were planning for both Catherine McCauley Center and Catholic Charities to be open and to be resettling refugees. Um, but things changed very quickly. 
um, and arrival numbers came to what really felt like a screeching halt pretty quick. Um, they drastically dropped. Uh, and pretty early in the 2017, 2018 um, kind of timeframe, those numbers were dropping and, and it got to a point where for many resettlement offices, they had to make a very difficult decision of, do we maintain a capacity of a hundred people being resettled or more, um, which oftentimes meant expanding the, um, the populations with which you were resettling or, um, or deciding to close your office. Um, and so unfortunately, Catholic charities decided they were un unable to maintain levels of resettlement. Um, and they decided that um, it just wasn't, wasn't something they were capable of. And so in 20, I believe in spring of 2017, uh, Catholic charities decided to close their resettlement office. Um, and we still do work very closely with them um, through other areas of our work um, and through kind of supportive services to refugees. But um, that all to say that Catherine McCauley Center is a very new resettlement program. But what truly makes me honored to work for Catherine McCauley Center is, um, you know, we grew up in a time of decreasing resettlement numbers, but we also grew up in a way that was very much focused on how are we wrapping our arms around clients um, and how are we making sure that we're providing supportive services. So the resettlement um, program, the federal resettlement program, the first 90 days of service is case management aimed at providing a foundation for life in the United States. And that's just a small piece of what we do. Um, Catherine McCauley Center provides a number of wraparound services, including employment services, ongoing case management opportunities and services and childcare business development programming um, that teaches individuals how to open in-home childcare centers. And so, you know, as we've grown, we've really looked at how, where are the gaps in services available? What are the needs of our communities? Um, we often work very closely with our, um, our refugee and immigrant communities to identify what are their goals and what are their dreams and how can we either partner with organizations that do the work or how can we establish that kind of work um, in Eastern Iowa? And so, we work very closely with a number of agencies while we recognize that um, we, we are the experts in providing services to refugees and providing case management. Um, we also know that we are not the experts in, um, in, in a number of different areas. So we work closely with the school districts and health providers um, and other refugee service providers like the Bureau and with our statewide partners as well. Um, and it's really truly key because we know we can't know it all, um, and we, you know, we we work to identify where those those areas for partnership are and how we can how we can grow and continue to wrap our arms around people. Um, but but always looking at how are we supporting refugees and immigrants in ways that move them towards self sufficiency. So we we do always want to keep an eye on how are we teaching people how to do things for themselves and how are we um, providing sustainable opportunities for education um, and ongoing personal growth and, and really working on connecting people with community resources so we can work ourselves out of a job. I'm really, uh, this is not an exaggeration uh, and I've told them both this before. I'm, I'm in awe of the, the work that you two do and, and all of your colleagues, it's so crucial. Sarah, you made a, a really important point there. 
uh, which is we only know what we know, right? And we the, the first part of this conversation has been really crucial for all of us to get a better understanding of the things we don't know about refugee resettlement in, in really broad and global terms and in national terms. Um, and uh, Catherine McCauley Center is, is very much uh, a leader in this area too. And I, I, I wanna turn now that we, that we have some foundation with which to, uh, to go more specific uh, to, uh, to Afghan refugees that are coming to, uh, to our state. Uh, this question is, is, for, is for both of you. Um, maybe Sarah, we can, uh, we can start with you. Uh, a lot has been in happening lately in Iowa in terms of Afghan refugee resettlement, right? You've been very busy. Uh, very busy, you and your colleagues. Um, would you please catch us up? Uh, where, you know, where, where are we now? What's been happening? Uh, and, and both you and Mock, what have been your roles uh, in these efforts to, uh, to help uh, resettle our, our new neighbors? Yeah, so like you said, a lot has been happening. Um, everything with the Afghanistan situation has evolved very quickly. And I think that's really kind of been, been the defining factor with, with especially resettling this population. Um, there are some, some nuances on the more um, kind of the higher 50,000 foot level um, that I can let Mock speak to with regards to kind of what makes Afghan situation different than what we're used to with more traditional resettlement. Um, but, but as far as we're concerned at CMC, you know, we're serving our Afghan resettlement clients and our Afghan, um, our Afghan neighbors, much like we do our typical refugees. The services we provide to individuals um, very much mirror the reception and placement services that we provide to refugees entering into the community. Um, there's a few nuanced differences, but, but it really does look the same. Um, we have so far resettled um, a little over, a little over 100 Afghans into Eastern Iowa. Um, what we've seen as far as demographics is, has been a lot of men that came um, that, that were able to flee very quickly and able to be evacuated very quickly, um, but now they're here alone. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of nuances in how are we providing services, um, but also how are we learning quickly about a new community that we, have, um, that we are welcoming into our, into our neighborhoods. Um, and, and it's really that idea of a constant learning process of we are learning from our newest neighbors um, and we are working to impart kind of our experience and understanding of US context to them as well. Um, and so with Afghans especially, we know that there's a lot of very strong religious ties. So we've been working closely with um, making connections with mosques and making connections with different religious entities um, because it's a, it is definitely a, a, a central point of community for a lot of people is what we've learned so far. Um, and, and really working to, to help support the creation of an Eastern Iowa Afghan community. Um, Eastern Iowa hasn't seen very many Afghans resettled uh, in the past. Um, and, and even looking at Cedar Rapids as we were preparing to resettle Afghans, um, there weren't very many Afghans in the area. Um, and so working to identify people who speak Pashto and Dari 
um, and just how can we how can we make sure that we have culturally competent and culturally aware services? Um, and and as you know that that pro that's a process is you start with just an awareness and you eventually might work your way up to competency and and humility really. Um, and and we are we are on that process and I wouldn't say we are wouldn't say we are there yet, but but we are we are constantly striving to learn. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, Mark, uh, would would you add to that? Uh, will you, from from your vantage point in in Des Moines at the Bureau of Refugee Services, um, will you tell us uh, what you're seeing, what's happening right now in our state uh, with Afghan refugee resettlement? Uh, numbers are just one small part of it, um, but what's been happening now, and and what what are you what are you seeing in the uh, next month, two months, three months? Yeah, well, uh, I appreciate the question, and Sarah definitely laid out uh, a nice sort of baseline of what's happening locally. Um, I think it's important to remember that we are dealing with a humanitarian crisis, um, one that we have not ever experienced as a country. And if we were to look at any sort of historical context, I would probably go back to the late 90s uh, with respect to the Kosovo situation and the evacuation of people um, from Kosovo. But even then, those two situations are, are very different. Uh, keeping that in mind, uh, as we talk about you know, what's happening, we as a network are learning every day on how to best address these situations. Um, touching on the going back to the refugee resettlement process and what we talked about how that looks like fleeing your home, crossing an international border, being in a second country of asylum, processing for travel, and then you set to travel. All of that was compacted here domestically in the United States. And so when people were evacuated out of Afghanistan, they were flown directly to a handful of military bases where all of those processes were being conducted at those military bases. So people have been living um, for example, at Fort McCoy up in Wisconsin, which is a military base that was mobilized and turned into a quasi-temporary refugee camp um, for the last five months. And so places that aren't equipped to handle such a situation, naturally there will be occurring hurdles and barriers paired with the process in itself of being evacuated that just causes a lot of more, a lot more turmoil in the overall process uh, in itself. Where we are as a state right now, we've been resettling Afghan refugees since early October. I would probably say the last five months is really um, us getting into the thick of things as far as the resettlement, and we don't see it really slowing down uh, in the coming fiscal year 20 of 2022. As a state, We've resettled just under 700 people as of last week to Iowa, which includes traditional reception and placement refugees in that pipeline that I mentioned alongside Afghans. As a state, we will probably anticipate in the coming months north of 1,000, um, and that number may increase later in the year. So taking that into consideration and just how drastically different resettlement looked three years ago with the infrastructure, with the lack of services and the gaps that existed, we have needed to ramp up our services and what we have in place 
at an exponential rate. I mean, we're talking overnight, people being evacuated, knowing they're coming to Iowa. What are we putting in place to ensure that successful and sustainable resettlement? The sort of foundational barriers that I like to call uh, that refugees face from language, housing, access to healthcare and schools, that has also increased drastically in navigating uh, how to get people access to those resources. Um, we've had existing problems prior, prior to the evacuation uh, and the humanitarian crisis. We've not only had to navigate a global pandemic that we are still in, but people are still recovering from last summer's derecho. Thank, thank goodness there was nothing serious last night. But I know that for a lot of us in this field and those who experienced it last year, um, there was a little bit of PTSD and trauma and needing to figure out how we're going to mobilize. But that's a side note, but thankfully not, nothing too crazy happened. So Iowa in itself, uh, from all those three factors, uh, you know, we've been working around the clock to make sure that our most vulnerable are getting what they need. We've made some headway, you know, I think, and I think that's uh, important to know. We, we, folk, we tend to focus on the hurdles and situations that people are facing and sort of the negative side of all of this, but there's also a lot of positive as well uh, that, that has come out of our partnerships, collaborations, and just the overall work that we're doing as a network. Um, for housing, for example, we've been able to secure a partnership through the Iowa Finance Authority uh, and the Iowa Economic Development Authority in tapping ERA or emergency rental assistance funds. We are only one of two states nationally that includes Oklahoma that can use these ERA funds to help support housing costs, uh, upfront costs for anyone staying in hotels or motels, um, rental payments for housing that, that, that becomes available in that long-term housing, housing. Sarah can maybe touch on that a little bit more because the resettlement agents are, are working directly we just facilitate the conversations. Um, we've had a lot of community uh, individuals and volunteers who have stepped up with donations, wanting to sponsor, wanting to support our resettlement agencies. And I think just the overall effort is there to help support. Naturally, there will be areas where people will unfortunately fall through the cracks. That's why it's imperative for us to continue to have those conversations and platforms like today uh, where we can ask questions, have candid conversations to figure out how we can work together. Um, but the situation is just new, uh, given that we haven't experienced and Iowa hasn't really been mobilized to the extent that it has in this moment in time, we're all still learning. It's an ever fluid situation. It's ever evolving and changing. We, are, we might get policy changes by the end of the week maybe even by the end of today. And so we have to navigate that accordingly and make sure that we have our pieces in place. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Uh, you, you covered a lot of ground there. Uh, it, it really is, as you said, um, in many ways unprecedented. And the, the, the need to respond in um, unprecedented and, and really nimble ways um, has just been remarkable. Uh, but because it's necessary, right? It's it's truly it's truly necessary. Um, and you touched on on policy there and how policy uh, comes into play in, in in very direct ways, very impactful ways. Uh, 
one of the conversations I'm very much looking forward to in this six-part series we're doing on refugees and immigrants in Iowa is, is our final session, which will be in May, where we're both talking about how all of these conversations, ours here today and the next few, uh, how, how refugee and immigrant voices, uh, how they shape and influence public policy. Uh, so I, I encourage uh, folks to, to come to that one uh, in May of next year. I want to touch real quick on something you were talking about a moment ago, Mock. Uh, several weeks ago, I was having uh, a really in incredible, humbling conversation um, with a, a woman who uh, is a nurse and was asked because she has served uh, with uh, Doctors Without Borders, uh, primarily in Central African nations, uh, to go to one of these military bases in the US. And the scene that she described, uh, I, had, I had read about only in articles. And you, you can only gain so much right, uh, from, from reading such an article. Although I, I will again plug the two books that, we, uh, that, that I showed you before. Um, and that's really because it, it's, it's the personal touch, the displaced and, and we the interwoven. I think that's very different than reading you know, a, a Washington Post, a New York Times article. Talking with her about her firsthand experience um, the scene she described, um, I have to tell you, first of all, I felt great comfort hearing it from her perspective. She was just uh, seeping with compassion and generosity and a humility that I would hope uh, folks who are receiving uh, Afghan refugees at military bases, at military bases, um, you know, not many of us are familiar with, uh, we haven't been on to military bases. So it's a, it's a unique sort of situation. And she was describing these individuals and, you know, sort of the, the how much one would want to do in that situation to say, you're, you're here now and you're safe, but I understand that you've gone through so much. I can see the trauma on your face. Um, you know, some folks with family, some people who came alone, uh, the difficulty of, of language, um, and, and the hopefulness um, of everyone in that situation, but the truly unprecedented nature with which everyone was brought together in that one place. Um, it's, yeah, uh, I, I was really touched uh, in, in just, uh, you know, listening and taking in, taking in how much you said, and it made me think a lot about, um, you know, about health and wellness. Um, and the, the imperative uh, discussions that need to happen around how folks need to move into their communities and the ongoing uh, support that some folks may need and the access to resources that too many folks don't have access to that we need to ensure more do. Um, it was a remarkable conversation. Um, Sarah, the newest Iowans, uh, those from Afghanistan and, and elsewhere, um, they have some unique needs. Uh, would you please share with us how Catherine McCauley uh, supports these individuals, as well as how folks watching, watching and listening today, how uh, these folks here, and, and hopefully folks they're going to uh, talk to in the coming days and, and, and share what they've learned here today, uh, how uh, they can support efforts to resettle our, our new neighbors. Do you have some you know, very tangible, specific ways um, that we can all help you and and mock do your your jobs. Uh, 
a, a little bit better or, or make it a little a little lighter uh, for a few minutes. There's a lot we can all do, right? Many hands make light work. Exactly. And, you know, I think there's always the first step in getting involved is identifying your own strengths and things that you do well um, and, and things that you you have the capability for. And so perhaps it's financial support, financial donations to organizations um, providing support to refugees and, and our newest Afghan neighbors as well. Um, perhaps it's, it, it's, you know, you have capacity to collect donations or to host a donation drive. Um, there are constant needs for, um, for household goods. Uh, and on CMC's website, we have a wish list of, of the items that we provide, as you can imagine, um, you know, think about all of the things you've touched in your home just this morning when you were getting ready, when you woke up, your bed, your toothbrush, your toothpaste, hairbrushes, soap, um, all of these things that, that go into making your house a home. Um, and, and we are tasked with providing those most basic necessities, um, basic household goods, uh, and so we have a constant need for those kinds of things. Um, but then also going into volunteering opportunities, CMC also has a number of different opportunities to get engaged on different levels. And so recognizing that sometimes you may have evening availability because you work a full-time job. Um, we welcome most of our refugees at airports actually in the evenings. So if it's a one-time thing, um, there are opportunities to go and meet new refugees at the airport and just show them that you welcome them into the community and that there is community support for their, their existence in, in our communities. Um, and going all the way up to our English tutoring program, um, I think it's about a 12-week commitment for an hour a week based on your own schedule, but providing one-on-one -on -one tutoring to refugees and immigrants in the community um, we always need support with things like moving people into homes um, and all of those different opportunities can also be found on our website um, and, and through, a, a, through a contact form and a volunteer tab on our website, you can um, find some of those different opportunities and sign up for education and training on how to do that different work. Um, and then, uh, sorry. Oh, good job, buddy. Um, and so all of those opportunities um, are, are available for ways to get involved. Um, but even things as simple as talking to your neighbors and talking to the people that you interact with about support for refugees and immigrants and, and just kind of changing that narrative, um, the, bringing it back to how we started the conversation and some of those conversations we had about um, recognizing the whole person and the breadth of experience people have um, working to identify that and, and bringing that up into conversations as well, that people are whole people who've had lived lifetimes of, of experiences. Um, and then specifically with the Afghan neighbors, especially, um, there is currently a, a bill that is the, that has been proposed um, called the Afghan Adjustment Act. Um, and I would encourage all of you to go look at it and understand it, but just as a point of education, on that bill, um, one of the nuances about the Afghan experience is because they didn't enter as refugees with that legal status of refugee, um, they were get granted humanitarian, many people were granted humanitarian parole. 
And so um, under humanitarian parole, it's a two it's a two year status, and within those two years, um, Afghans will be required who were granted parole will be required to adjust their status. They'll be required to apply for asylum or apply for uh, special immigrant visas. Um, if, if they're eligible for those, which are extremely lengthy processes um, and it's extremely in-depth and, and require a lot of work on the part of immigration attorneys as well. Um, and so the potential for that, um, for, for this bill that has been introduced, the Afghan uh, Adjustment Act, um, would allow Afghans to just adjust their status and it would, it would fall more in line with what we see with other refugee populations where after a year they're eligible to apply for a green card um, and they have a pathway to citizenship through that humanitarian parole that they were granted. Um, so I encourage people to look into that and understand um, kind of what, what the benefits of that might be and what some of the challenges might be as well. But, but it's, you know, it's not a one size fits all opportunity to get engaged. And I think the first step is knowing yourself and what your capabilities are and what your passions are. And then we can definitely find connections and opportunities to, to, to engage those passions. That's yeah, it, you've covered a, a real range of things and it's, it's truly my earnest hope that folks have been taking notes and finding, thinking about ways that, that they themselves um, can, can volunteer, can, can give time, uh, maybe uh, support, support financially and, and, and share, those, share those lists. Let's ripple out um, the very practical things that we can do together um, yes, um, and, and Mark, you, you may have uh, some points to add on to that, um, but I want to turn to my final question before we go to the Q&A portion, and, and Mark, feel free to, to add on to anything that uh, Sarah's just said. Um, so I'll start with you, Mark. Would you each briefly share your thoughts on the importance of your work to society and why refugee resettlement is a crucial and necessary aspect of humanitarianism in, in today's world. Yeah, I can go ahead and start. I think the importance of our work really stems from the fact that there are agencies and entities and institutions in place to help our most vulnerable citizens and our new Iowans. And so without the work that we do, a lot of the navigating of systems that are in place would be very difficult to achieve by refugees and immigrants. And so our sole purpose as a network and for Sarah and myself and the colleagues we work with is to be that bridge essentially between those who are arriving to the state and the country and setting them up for success and integration into their new home. And so without, uh, without that sort of service being available there, um, it would be very challenging for one to not only successfully integrate, but to even know where to begin. And the fact that if this sort of institution and system didn't exist, many people who are refugees would never be able to come to the United States and would have to live in circumstances and situations that would not allow them a safe haven or a place to, to flee to. And so the fact that refugee resettlement in itself exists, that is an existing avenue that provides hope to people. 
and that gives them an opportunity to survive and to start anew as difficult as it may be uh, that opportunity and option is there for, for many like I mentioned uh, a lot don't get to achieve that resettlement process but the fact that we have something in place uh, it, it allows for that that survival I guess for, for people who are fleeing certain situations and then I, I think that goes without saying as to why it's crucial uh, because people who are coming here from the refugee experience and arriving to their new home, we are working with them hand in hand for that first 90 to 180 days. For the for Catherine McCulley, for example, those once those services end, the agencies like the Bureau of Refugee Services, other wraparound and nonprofits, ethnic community-based organizations sort of pick up where resettlement agencies leave off. And, and our, like I mentioned, our, our main goal is to really make sure and to ensure that people have the resources they need to succeed, to start their own lives, to begin to grow roots and develop, develop a foundation for their families and for the next potential wave of, of refugees and immigrants that are coming to our state and to our country. Refugee resettlement and immigration politics aside is inevitable. And so we have to have something in place that allows for that successful and open reception. And as we go forward, that bilateral partnership, and I like that term that you use, that bilateral partnership and collaboration as we move forward, because the world is only getting smaller. And so we have to make sure that we are, that we keep in mind that we're in this together. And that's, that's not a preach to or a political stance, that's just the reality. If you look at it from that perspective, it's just the reality uh, that we are facing. And, we have to be prepared. Yeah, we live in a very um, mobile world, and we live in one in wherein uh, reasons for having to go elsewhere to move elsewhere will only increase. Uh, whether it's the environment, uh, conflict, war, poverty, uh, there are just there. Sadly, there are far too many reasons. And you're right; the infrastructures are infrastructures are so very important. Sarah, I'll turn to you for that final question, and then we'll we'll turn it to, to folks uh, who are here for their own. Um, again, would you briefly share your thoughts on the importance of your work to society and why refugee resettlement is a crucial and necessary aspect of humanitarianism? Humanity yeah, I mean, in today's world. I think I think again, Mark Mark really touched on on so many really crucial points about about the importance of it, and I think you know, when we look at the history of the movement of people, um, right, even before the resettlement program was formalized in the United States, there was resettlement. Um, resettlement has been done for, for years and years, um, previously on an ad hoc basis, and then it was formalized into the, the federal resettlement program. Um, and I think one thing that I always like to highlight is that so, so often, when we talk about the benefits of the resettlement program and the benefits of refugees and immigrants, we talk, we do talk about it in an economic, from an economic lens about refugees are, uh, refugees and immigrants are more likely to start up businesses. They bring so much money into local economies. And, and while those are very important and valuable things to contribute, um, I, I, I don't want to kind of narrow someone into their economic contributions to society 
just like you wouldn't want to be um, be solely valued for 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 your economic contributions and what you the taxes you pay. Um, our, our refugees bring a diversity of ideas and a diversity of values and diversity of, of just cultural richness um, that, that again, we can all learn from and we can all um, experience and, and grow. Um, and so I think that that's much harder to, to, to really, it's not as tangible, um, but, but it's so much bigger than that. It's, it's bringing in values of, of family and value of community and value of leaning on one another and resiliency and strength. Um, you know, it was a very clear example. Um, when the derecho hit Cedar Rapids, uh, one of my coworkers has, has said multiple times that, you know, while her and her family were, were whining and in, in her words, whining about not having power for a week and their cell phones not working, um, she looked to our, our students and our clients that we work with and how, you know, a majority of them, yes, they, they didn't skip a beat and they made it to work on time. They, they figured out ways to survive and, and truly find ways to, um, kind of work with what they had to, to be able to get by because they had that resilience and strength and, and history of survival. Um, and, and those are things where we can learn from one another and, and those are a lot harder to quantify um, than, than the taxes someone pays into our economy. But, but there's a true value in that as well. And I think that that is a big piece of the work that we do is identifying that and, and helping build people up in, in seeing that as a strength in, of, of resettlement. Beautiful answers, you guys, yeah. Um... Yeah. Okay. Um, we now move to the question and answer portion of our program. Please uh, submit your questions via the chat function at the bottom of your viewing screen. Feel free to turn on your video function, uh, but please keep yourself muted. Um, while we're waiting for questions to come in, ICFRC wants to thank its members and donors for their support. We need to raise matching funds to carry out our new program. So if you would like to make a gift to support our program on refugees and immigrants in Iowa, please go to icfrc.org slash donate. Uh, right now, your gift will be matched, so it will have double the impact. Uh, thank you. Uh, okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm hoping that folks are going to put some uh, questions into the, uh, into the chat box here. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm getting, the sun is pushing me further and further over to the edge of my screen. So if I fall off, you guys just keep talking, okay? Um, let, me, let me start with a question of, of my own. Uh, I, I'm wondering, you know, uh, and maybe this is to you, Sarah, um, in interacting uh, with folks directly, uh, could you perhaps share with us um, you know, uh, an interaction uh, with um, a new Afghan neighbor that's that really sticks with you? Ooh, that is a wonderful question. And I think one of the things that just always strikes me when I'm working with our neighbors and meeting new people um, as we resettle them is, is just that truly how how much it could be you or I, it could be any of us. Um, and it's, it's an accident of birth or an accident of circumstance, 
that has led people to them to be forced to flee their homes. Um, I've, I've shared it a couple times and um, but short the day before Thanksgiving, I went to go meet with a number of the Afghans that we have resettled uh, and was talking with um, with the help of an interpreter um, just about kind of people's experiences and as as a, as a rule of thumb, I don't ask people about details about why they've fled um, because that can be very traumatizing. And I, I leave it to people to share their own experiences as they feel comfortable. Um, but I, I was talking with people about life and they shared with me about family that they left in Afghanistan um, for a lot of the men that are here, um, including the interpreter that was translating for me. Um, he left his wife and child in Afghanistan because they simply could not get to, um, to the airport quick enough to be evacuated. Um, and so his, you know, his, through the course of conversation learned that his child is about two weeks younger than my youngest daughter. Um, and in doing the math very quickly, my mind went through, he, as a parent, my heart broke because um, he evacuated in August, um, his child's birthday was in October. So he missed his child's first birthday party, his first, their first birthday celebration. Um, and, and I think about all of the things that my child has learned in that time and the things that he has, he'd missed. Um, and, and so it was some of those hard conversations about what people miss about back home and what they left. Um, but also conversations with the Afghans about what do they hope for? What are, what are their goals? What do they want to accomplish? Um, and really ending on that note of what, is, what are their hopes for life in the United States and, and what are their goals and what, what did they have that they want to bring with them and what are things that they wanted to leave behind? Um, it, just, it just always amazes me, um, really the humanity of it all. Can't say it better than that, Sarah. Um, what a beautiful answer. Uh, okay, we do have some additional questions. Um, in addition to supporting refugee service organizations, how can we be good allies to our new neighbors? Uh, a question for either one of you. Uh, you know, I, I truly think that things as simple as, as sharing sharing what you've learned um, about refugees and immigrants with, with your neighbors, um, bringing things up in, in regular conversation are always good. But, you know, just like you would are your neighbors that were born here, be Iowa nice, smile at people, hold the door for people, make eye contact. Um, for many of our cultures, those are, those are newer things, but, but our refugees and immigrants do pick up on how they are treated and how it's different than other people. And so really making sure that you are just, just being supportive and welcoming and treating everyone, um, that golden rule of treating everyone as you would wish to be treated. Yeah, I would say if you approach people with a sense of humanity, it's easy to be an ally. So I think that's what I would say. Yeah, thank you. Mark, I'm going to uh, turn this one to you. Uh, we have a question in the chat box. Would you explain a bit about the difference between someone being on refugee status 
and being an asylum seeker. And maybe this is also a good place to talk about the, the categories of, uh, of statuses that Afghan refugees have come on because there's some new language that I think folks may not uh, entirely uh, understand. Yep, the, the main difference between the two is that somebody who has been processed through the refugee process and achieved that refugee status it's just an, an official governmental process that gives them that designation. An asylum seeker has to actually go to a final destination and then seek asylum through that community or state where they are living, as opposed to starting off where they are potentially fleeing from, going through that traditional process and then receiving that status. Refugees arrive with that status. Asylum seekers don't have a status until they are approved for asylum. And how about uh, SIV, uh, parolee, what are the, in just in maybe a few words. Sure. So humanitarian parolee status was given to Afghans who were evacuated um, from Afghanistan and brought over to the United States or are residing in one of the safe haven countries uh, in Qatar and in Europe. Uh, the difference between those humanitarian parolees and SIVs, for example, is anyone who did not work with the United States military, uh, United States NGO, or does not or did not complete the process of achieving SIV status were given a humanitarian parolee status. Any Afghan and even Iraqi for that matter, uh, who was working with the United States military and government or an international uh, United States based NGO they were given special immigrant visa status. These individuals usually worked as uh, interpreters or translators for our military personnel on the ground. Um, and they were given this priority status as an affiliate essentially of the United States military. And uh, SIVs also potentially were part of the Afghan National Army as well, working side by side with the United States military. So that's, that's the difference. I don't know, Sarah, if I, Missed anything, if you want to touch on any, any, any of that? Nope, I think you did wonderful. <laughs> uh, yes, thank you, Mark. Uh, uh, okay, very good. Um, let's see, the uh, one last question here and then uh, we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, okay, so yeah, there was a question about uh, a little further up, which Sarah, I think you might've answered in Johnson County who does refugee uh, support services. Uh, you wrote Catherine McCauley Center serves and resettles refugees within a 100 mile radius of Cedar Rapids. We are currently the only resettlement service provider in Eastern Iowa. We do work closely with IC Compassion for ongoing supportive services to refugees and immigrants. Anything else you wanna to add to that, Sarah? I think the only addition would be that, you know, we recognize that there are a lot of um, other organizations and groups that work with um, work with refugees. I know the um, University of Iowa's, uh, oh my goodness, mental, they did, they've done a lot of work with mental health counseling um, with refugees, specifically with refugees and immigrants. Um, and we know that church, church um, communities end up being a strong point of contact and support for many refugee and immigrant communities as well. So, you know, Iowa City is rich in resources um, and that, go that carries into refugee and immigrant supports as well. 
And I, and I would also just provide a reminder to everyone on the call that the Bureau of Refugee Services is a statewide agency. So we help support not only Catherine McCauley and their efforts regionally in Iowa, uh, but we support all refugee communities across the state. So any questions you may have with overall state resettlement, uh, potential resettlement expansion in the eastern part of the state, and um, any public benefits sort of um, system navigation you may have, we can help. We can help with that as well. Uh, my my last question, and I'll turn to my closing remarks. Let's let's say uh, I'm uh, I'm in our you know viewing listening audience right now, and I have questions or follow ups. I want to learn more. I want to become a, a volunteer at Catherine McCauley. Uh, or elsewhere, learn where else I can uh, volunteer. Maybe I don't live in Iowa City or Cedar Rapids or Des Moines. How do I get in contact with folks? Who do I contact? Uh, definitely Sarah Zainich for the time being, and then she will obviously direct accordingly. Uh, if you are interested in volunteering, obviously you're reaching out to any local agencies that Sarah mentioned in the chat in Iowa City, Johnson County. Uh, but there are also opportunities through uh, the bureau's networks as well, where we can get you connected with folks uh, that are overseeing different alliances, community organizations. Sarah has access to those as well. A good starting point is always Sarah or my or myself, and then we we will direct accordingly. Fabulous. Okay. Uh, we now conclude our program. I want to give a big thank you to Mark Sucheska and Sarah Zennick for their wonderful presentations and for sharing their expertise with us today. Sarah and Mock, I am, this is the first time I've gotten to do this, so I'm pretty pumped up actually. Sarah and Mock, I am honored to virtually present you with ICFRC's highly coveted mug or coffee, tea, or the beverage of your choice. We will coordinate delivery details with you very soon. Look forward to that. Uh, our next program will be held online on Wednesday, January 19th, uh, again at 12 noon. And just like today, we're going to go a little bit longer in duration than we have with ICFRC uh, programs in the past. We're going about 75, maybe 90 minutes in, in total length. The topic uh, for our next conversation will be life in Iowa as a refugee and immigrant. And I am just, uh, I am so excited about our, our, our panelists. We'll be hearing from Zalme Niaze, uh, who is from Afghanistan originally and now is in Iowa Falls. Uh, you may have seen a lot of press coverage about him lately and, and his status situation. He'll be fabulous. Uh, Elizabeth Bernal, who is here in Iowa City, originally from uh, Mexico. Uh, Enos Petrovich Jasarovich, who works with MOC, actually, in Des Moines at the Bureau of Refugee Services. And Rex Mwamba, uh, who actually works with uh, Sarah <laughs> at the Catherine McCauley Center, um, originally from the DRC. Uh, Enos, originally from Bosnia. So it's going to be a, an important and uh, really compelling conversation. I hope you'll join us for that. We will email you more information on this program on January 13th. In the meantime, we wish you all a wonderful new year. Thanks for joining us, and we are adjourned. Mm -hmm.